gracious, as we're going to look at today. The Lord is gracious, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So the Bible declares that. And and in the Bible, we see a, a history of God's gracious dealings with his people. And over and over they rebelled and they, they didn't believe them and they complained and they murmured. And God was gracious and compassionate, provided, protected, gave his presence to go with them over and over. God displayed his grace to his people and he does the same for us today. So the Bible declares it. So one, just the revelation of scripture. I think when I look at creation itself, I see the graciousness of God and the goodness of God, the way that that a mother bird cares for her baby birds, the way that a, that a mother, a, a human mother cares for her children or a father pities their children. That those are some of this, the displays of God's graciousness. And, and creation, God is a gracious God, and we can look to creation and see marks and traces of his grace. And then, and then my own personal experience, I have tasted and seen that God is good and gracious. I've experienced it in my own life. I've prayed and God has answered. I've been in terrible situations and God has intervened and rescued me, protected me, delivered me in so many different ways. So I've seen that and I've experienced God's presence. I've experienced the nearness of God. I've tasted and I've seen that he's good and that he's with me. And that's so special to know that you know that you know God is with you. And lastly, I'm convinced that he's gracious because of gracious people who bear his name. Because of people who know him, who know the gracious one, and they give grace to other people. Spiritual leaders like Pastor Brad Weir and, and others that, that I've walked with, and just brothers and sisters, the body of Christ here today. My grandmother died yesterday, and, and many of you, even this morning, just came and gave me a hug and just, just communicated your, your sympathy and your, your, your care and your concern about the grief of my loss. And the graciousness of people, a human but flesh and blood that embodies grace, who knows people who know the gracious one and they show the gracious one to others. I am convinced that God is a gracious God. He is a good God. Yet I know that this is something that we all struggle with when we look at this fallen, broken world all around us and we see the terrible injustice and evils that are taking place in our world today. We wrestle with this question, especially when it's us, when we're thrown in the fire, when we're going through the testing, when we're experiencing a Job-like experience, suffering and pain in this world. We, We question, we often struggle like, God, if you're good, why is this happening? Why are we living in this fallen, broken world? And this here is so important for us to know God, to know that he is gracious, Amen. So we are going to continue in the book of Exodus and and we're going to hone in on that. We're going to focus in on that. Our vision here at City Church is to know Jesus, love people and impact your world. And so we are 
First and foremost, we are about knowing Jesus. We are about knowing who God is, who the Lord is. We want to know him and know him deeply and know him intimately and know him accurately. We want to know him and walk with him and experience him. And then from that, the other two parts of the vision flow, loving people and impacting the world. It all starts with knowing him. And Moses, as we talked about two weeks ago, Moses knew God. Psalm 103 verse 7 says, The Lord made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. Psalm 103 verse 8, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God revealed his ways to Moses. Moses had this deep relationship with God and God spoke to him. God spoke to him as a man speaks to his friend. Moses was a friend of God. He had this relationship with God. And that's one thing that's different about Christianity in every other religion, that Christianity is not just a mere religion. It is a relationship with the one true living God, the God of all grace, the one who is gracious and is compassionate, who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love, the one who's full of grace and truth. Christianity is a relationship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. And sadly, there are many people in church today who have their religion and have their Sunday routine, who are faithful to going to church, but there are many who are doing that but yet don't know God. They're going through the religious acts, doing the religious duties, practicing the, re- the rituals and the religious disciplines, but there are people who are doing all those things yet don't know God like the Pharisees. And so that is something, church, that we can't miss out on. That is something that should be weighty to us, that we know him and that we love him and that we experience him in our lives and walk with him. Amen? And that was important to Moses. As Moses was leading this million-plus people, the Israelites, God had shown great mighty acts and deeds and wonders. And the Israelites saw his mighty hand bring judgments on Pharaoh and and the Egyptian gods. And, And they saw God deliver them through the Red Sea out of bondage, out of slavery. And Kevin did a great job last week preaching on the on the Ten Commandments. And it started off with, I am the Lord your God, Exodus 20. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he gives them the commandments. God reminds the Israelites that he had delivered them from the land of Egypt. He had redeemed them. He had bought them. He had purchased them. And he was bringing them into a good land flowing with milk and honey. And God gave them laws to live by. And, and, and Kevin did a great job last week explaining those, those commands and the heart, the heart of God behind those commands. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus 33. A.W. Tozer says that what we... What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. 
worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And he goes on and he says, uh, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is this is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. That's from A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. So what comes to our mind when we think about God? Does, does this come to your mind when you think about God, that he's gracious? There are seven attributes listed in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 that we're going to look at. And this is one, this is a big one. This is important. This is one of those aspects. And when God revealed himself to Moses, he showed or made known his ways to Moses. This is one of the things that he said, that he's gracious. He's the Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Let me, let me just give you the big idea of where we're going, and then we're going to read the text. Uh, the first thing, or the big idea is that God is, God's gracious nature is one aspect of his goodness that we must become acquainted with if we are to truly know him. God's gracious nature is one aspect of his goodness that we must become acquainted with if we are to truly know him. Do we know God as the God of all grace, as the Lord gracious? Okay, so let's look at... At Moses here because uh, Moses and the children of Israel, God had been gracious to the children of Israel. God had showed up. He delivered them. And yet they worship the golden calf. And it, it, it angers God and angers Moses. And Moses takes the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and he throws them down and he breaks them. By the way, I'm going to steal your joke from, from last week that you didn't share. By the way, who's the one person in the Bible who broke all the Ten Commandments at once? Moses. Uh, Moses broke the Ten Commandments at once. He broke the tablets. Uh, and then God says, okay, now you're going to have to carry the tablets up the mountain again, and I'll rewrite them there. Uh, so, he had <laughs> so they worshiped the golden calf after God had, been, had displayed gracious acts towards them. They, they, they worshipped idols. Their, their hearts strayed from God, and, and it angered God. So anyways, we have in Exodus 33 and 34 the renewing of that covenant. God renews the covenant with his people. And so let's look at the text here. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring this people, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight I and your people, is it not your going with us so that we are distinct and I and your people from every people of the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. 
And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock while my glory passes by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the stones the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke, Moses. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let the, let the flocks, let no flocks or herds graze opposite that opposite to that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and he took the tablets of stone with him. Up the mountain. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers to the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And Moses quickly bowed toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardoned our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not have been created in all the earth or in any nation and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Uh, so here's my first point. The first point is simply this, that God displays grace when he reveals himself to us. J.I. Packer, in his book, highlights the, the reality that knowing God is a matter of grace. You see, the reality that God would reveal himself to us is a gracious act of God. And Moses had found grace in God's sight. He had found favor in God's sight. And through or by that grace, God revealed himself to Moses. You see, our knowing God is largely dependent upon him revealing himself to us. You see, you can't know somebody unless they're willing to let you know them. Unless they're willing to let down the walls of their hearts and tell you who they really are in their heart of hearts, you can't know them. They have to let you know them. And it is an awesome, gracious, wonderful thing that God lets us and wants us to know him. God wants that for every one of his people. He wants us to have this deep relationship with him. You see, this is the second time 
that the Lord had uh, declared his name to Moses, the, 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 the divine name, the personal name, the proper name of God, Yahweh. Okay? You see, back in Exodus 3, the Lord revealed himself to Moses. Moses is giving his objections to God. God was calling him and commissioning him to go to Pharaoh and deliver the people from Egypt. And, God, and, and he says uh, to God, what, what's your name that I might you know, tell him who sent me? You know, and God, what does God say? I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Uh, he is the ex- ex- self-existent one, the, the self-sufficient one, Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. And by the way, when you see in your Bible, those of you who have translations that have all caps with Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps, that is the divine name, Yahweh, Okay. The Jews considered that name to be holy, and they avoided saying it, and they treated it with greatest respect and honor. Actually, uh, many of the Jews actually uh, used the term Hashem, which, which in Hebrew it means the name, to just avoid mispronouncing or misuse of God's name. They, they counted God's name as holy and to be spoken about in a holy way. Uh, by the way, that was one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That matters to God. Uh, by the way, Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, what was the first thing, uh, the first petition that he put in there? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So, in essence, Jesus is saying, let your name be hallowed. May your name be treated as holy and hallowed and honored. God's name is holy. Amen? God reveals his name to Moses. He, Moses had got, uh, he had asked the question, what's your name, earlier on. And, and God told him his name. I am who I am. The Lord, Yahweh. And then later on, in, in, in Exodus 34, the Lord, Yahweh, gives the meaning of his name. And he unpacks who he is. He unpacks seven attributes of who he is. God doesn't want us to just know his name and just so that we can know what title to call God. You're not going to get to heaven just because you call God the right title. You need to know him. You need to not just know what title to call him. You need to have a personal relationship with him. You need to know this God, Yahweh, the creator the, the everlasting God as the, the Lord merciful, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love. And so God in his grace reveals himself to us. Jesus even said, no one knows the Father except the Son and the Son and to whom the Son uh, chooses or wishes to reveal him to. Um, so, so God is free to reveal himself to whoever he wants. So in Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses' prayer request was this. He wanted to know God's ways. Verse 13. He wanted to know God's ways. He, wanted, he, he asked for God's presence. And he asked to see God's glory. In Psalm 103, verse 7, it says, The Lord made known his ways to Moses in his acts to the children of Israel. So there's a contrast. 
There's a contrast of, of how well Moses knew God in contrast to the Israelites and how well they knew God. One, one commentator puts it like this, or, or Sir Richard Baker says this, These ways of his that he made known to Moses, that he made known to Moses and to the children of Israel, only his acts, he showed them his wonderful favors to himself, to themselves in the wilderness. So he gave them bread, he gave them meat, he gave them water. And by the way, they, they complained to get all that. They're like, oh God, why don't you give us some meat? Moses, come on, we're hungry, we're thirsty. Those of you who are parents know that that is the wrong way to ask mom and dad for something to eat or something to drink. You don't sit down and throw a fit and pout and whine and cry until you irritate everybody in the house so that you can get your fruit snacks. Okay? A a simple, mommy, daddy, can I have a fruit snack? Will work just fine. (laughs) Mommy, daddy, I'm hungry. We 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 need to be respectful in how we talk to God. And so so God provided for them in the wilderness. He he made known his his acts to the children of Israel. He delivered them, he showed his mighty acts, but he showed Moses his ways. Uh, he showed him he, he showed not them his ways and the course he held in them. They saw only the events of things. They saw not the reasons of them as Moses did. Moses knew the why behind what God was doing. He knew the heart, the reasons behind God providing graciously. God made known his ways to Moses. He revealed his name to Moses and the meaning of his name to Moses. Um, Moses asked for God's presence to be with him. This, This should be important for every Christian, okay? Those of you who are married, just think about this. This would be crazy. If you got if you got married and then you went on a honeymoon without your spouse. You went to Hawaii, Australia, New Zealand, just the nicest place in the world and you just had a week, two weeks to see the the, the, the greatest beauty in the world and you did all the activities, you went skydiving and you went scuba diving and hiking. You did all those things but you didn't have your husband or your wife there with you. Your, your beloved bride or groom there with you to enjoy that wonderful vacation of a lifetime. That's ridiculous, isn't it? That's ridiculous to even think about. Who would do that? You want that the best part about a honeymoon is that you got your wife or your husband there with you. You got their presence there with you. The one whom you have made a covenant with there with you the one whom you love and loves you there with you that's the best part of it right and that is exactly what moses wanted from god he wanted the presence of god to be with him and to be with them and as a leader he says god don't send us out we don't want to go i don't want to go if your presence doesn't go with us I've said that to the church planting team from the very beginning of this church plant, that if God's not in this and he's not building this house and he's not with us, then let's not do this. But he has promised his church that as we go and make disciples, he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's what we're going to be about here. That's what we are about, making disciples, knowing Jesus, loving people and impacting our world. That's discipleship. Okay. Impacting our world, loving people, that's discipleship. So he promises 
his presence. He, Moses pleads for it, and God promises to give it. Isn't that special to you? Does, does that not excite you? If, if you could be happy, if you think you could be happy in heaven without God's presence, then you might not be going there. The best part of heaven is the reality that God is there and that we get to be with him in whose presence there is fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. But if you think you can have the pleasures forevermore and the joy unspeakable and full of glory without him, you're wrong. He is the source of that. And he should be our greatest treasure and our greatest delight. We, as Christians, should long for the presence of God and, and invite the presence of God into our homes, into our lives, into our workplaces, into our marriages, into our relationships. We should welcome the presence of God and acknowledge the presence of God. He is the living God. He's real. He's here now. Right? So, and lastly, Moses pleaded to see God's glory. He wanted to see the weightiness of who God is. Um, the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Um, there's a, one theologian, Philip Rinkin, who says in his commentary that the glory of God is the weightiness of who he is in the totality of his perfections. The glory of God is the weightiness of who he is in the totality of his perfections. Christians, we should pray this prayer. Show me your glory. This is similar to the prayer uh, that Paul t- prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to know the hope of their calling, the riches of the glorious inheritance of his, in, in his saints, and the power that works towards us who, believes, who believe. Um, and it, and, and, and in Ephesians chapter 3, um, that by the Spirit the Lord would help us to comprehend God's love, the depth and the height and the length and the breadth of God's love. That, that we would be able to get that. Um, so we should pray that. God, show me your glory. We sang that this morning. Show us, show us your glory. Show us, show us your power. So the glory of God is the weightiness of who he is. Do you take God lightly? Or is there weight when you talk about God? Or when you're praising him or you're reading his word is there a weight that you sense and you feel as you approach a holy god because you know that he is awesome and he is good and he's great and he's powerful i mean just think if somebody famous and powerful and rich walked in this room right now all of a sudden the atmosphere would change and everybody would be thinking about the weight of that person that's sitting over there on the other row Michael Jordan, we'll say Michael Jordan. If Michael Jordan walked in here right now, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, you better not bow down to him. (laughs) There would be a sense of weight like, oh, wow, Michael Jordan's coming to City Church Garland now. Whoa, cool. We're going to be out of this little room pretty soon. (laughs) There would be be this sense of weight. There would be this sense of weight and, and in the presence of somebody that we consider to be glorious or great, right? And if we approach God like that, if, if we consider God's presence, who he is to be most important 
and weighty to us, then we're going to live different. When we read our Bibles, we're going to read our Bibles different. When we sing praises to God, we're going to sing praises different. I think we're going to bow to our knees a little bit more if we really feel the weight of who God is because we're going to feel that he's worthy that we bow down to, that he's holy. And who am I that I could come into your presence and meet with you, God? We're going to bow low. This happens in the Bible when men counter, encounter God. That's exactly what Moses did after he experienced God in this way. He bowed down in worship. And we should do the same. God is free to be gracious to whomever he wishes. So, so the first thing is, verse 19, he, God gives an immediate response to Moses' request. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And, and, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. Okay? Yahweh. And, I, and he goes on, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This, this is similar to that, that, that kind of reasoning, um, I am who I am. Okay, what does that mean? I am who I am. What, what do I do with that, God? I am who I am. I am who I am. I am. Tell them I am sent you. Okay, here, there's some similar language here. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So God, being God, he always was and always existed. He is who he is. He will be who he will be. And you know what? He will be gracious to whomever he'll be gracious to. He'll be merciful to whomever he'll be merciful to. His mercy can break out on anyone at any time. His mercy can just fall down on you and overtake you. Goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. He can just unleash mercy and grace on you. Is that an awesome thought? But this, I want us to feel the weight of this. This is who God is. This will change the way we approach God in prayer. We'll want to come into his presence. We'll feel like we're not just tolerated in his presence, that we are welcomed into his presence and that we can come with boldness before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and grace to find help in our time of need. We'll approach God differently when we get this. He is the Lord, merciful and gracious. And he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. He has freedom to give anybody large amounts of grace and mercy or just some amounts of grace and mercy now he's abundant and abounding in it it's not like he's not stingy with it he's not stingy with the love he's rich in love and he's not stingy with it but you know what he doesn't owe it to anybody now as americans we struggle with this because we have a mentality many americans have this mentality of entitlement that we deserve goodness and blessing. We deserve, everybody deserves it. We have this idea of fairness with God that, that he should treat everybody exactly the same and give them all the same amount of grace and mercy, the same amount of chances. Well, you gave, uh, you only gave Ananias and Sapphira that one chance and boom, you took them out for one lie, God, in the New Testament. We look at stuff like that and we're like, God, why did you do that? The other way, flip, flipped around kind of in a, in a twisted way, Jonah Jonah knew this about God. By the way, this, this um, uh, Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is like the, the John three sixteen of the Old Testament. 
this was foundational for the Jewish person to know who God is, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This, this is quoted many times in the Old Testament. David quoted this as a basis for worship. Psalm 103, Psalm 145, Psalm 86. This, is, this should fuel our worship, knowing who God is. Um, this should, in Joel, this is quoted uh, as a basis for repentance. Turn to the Lord because God is gracious and he's merciful and he's slow to anger. This is also quoted by Nahum and uh, one of the, the minor prophets. Uh, actually, he quotes the last part of, of chapter set, verse 7 as God going to bring judgment because he by no means clears the guilty, which we'll, we'll try to get to here at the end. But, but Jonah, Jonah resisted going to Nineveh. And, and Jonah, at the end of the story, in chapter 2, verse 4, Jonah tells God why. And his, his, his selfishness and hardness of heart was kind of exposed there. And this is what Jonah says. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He knew that if he went and preached against Nineveh, that God will bring judgment, uh, that they would repent. And if they repent, God would be merciful and gracious and, and not wipe them out. And Jonah wanted Nineveh to be wiped out by the judgment of God because God's a just and a holy God and he will punish sin. Jonah wanted that. He wanted revenge on the Ninevites because they were a cruel people. And so Jonah, he's throwing a pity party because Nineveh, there's revival. This One of the greatest revivals in the Bible or one of the greatest turning of repentance in the bible nineveh repents a whole city repents could you imagine like dallas everybody repenting and turning to god jonah he's like throwing a fit like saying god i knew you were going to do this i knew you were going to do this i knew that you're gracious and compassionate slow to anger don't don't use this as an excuse not to be a missionary by the way this this should work the other way around this should be the basis for being a missionary, that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. That should fuel us to go because God wants to extend mercy and grace. But he is free to, to dispense his mercy and grace to whomever he wants. And we shouldn't have a problem with that because he reserves that right as God to do that. He will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. I know that that rubs up against our American mentality, I, I, that the American entitlement mindset, mindset and, and concept of fairness. But God is free to be gracious to whom he will be gracious. Wayne Grudem says this about grace and mercy and patience, which are coupled together in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He says grace means God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. Okay? Grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. You see, we think, many Americans think, we don't deserve God's punishment. We're not that bad. We don't deserve to be destroyed by another nation. We're, we're a righteous nation. We'll win in a war because God's with us. I, so we have this mentality. We think ourselves to be better than we really are. But when we look at the holiness of God, we see that we are all guilty and deserving of the punishment of God. Kevin emphasized that well last week as he preached through the Ten Commandments. You look at the Ten Commandments, and you see we have sinned against the Holy God. You look at these characteristics revealed in uh, Gen uh, Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and you see that we fall short of being gracious and merciful and patient, slow to anger. 
bounding in steadfast love, being faithful, being just. We fall short of that. Um, Grudem goes on, he says that, that mercy means God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. Uh, patience means God's goodness and withholding of punishment towards those who sin over a period of time. So this we see throughout the Bible. And this is actually one of the reasons that, that Peter in Second Peter 3, 9 says, uh, God's not willing that any should perish. So, so some, some are like, you know, well, where's Jesus? I thought he's coming back. I thought he's going to judge the living and the dead. Come on, you Christians. I thought Jesus is for real. He's coming back. Well, Peter says God's patient and he's not willing that any should perish. He's, he's giving opportunity to repent, to turn. So he's patient. He's gracious. He's merciful. So the idea of being slow to anger is being patient. How many of us could use some of that in our parenting? Parents? How many of us can use some of that with our work relationships? A little, little bit of patience. All right? Some of us need to pray for patience. Just pray really hard for patience. I want to see what happens to you. See what God brings to develop that patience in your life. He is patient. By the way, if we struggle with these things, if we lack these things, we should spend time meditating and beholding the God of patience, the God of all grace, the God of mercy who's merciful and gracious. That's, that's going to be our application here. That's where we're going at the end. So here's seven attributes revealed in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is patient. He's slow to anger. So I was talking with my son last night, by the way, and I was explaining to him what we were talking about. Oh, I was telling him, I was telling him this story and tell him how the children of Israel made God angry by their idolatry. And, and my son, he, he said, well, I thought God doesn't get angry, Dad. I said, no. I said, no, he gets angry, but he's slow to anger, son. And I sang, you're rich and love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. And it just clicked for him. Like, okay. He gets angry, but he's slow to anger. I said, you know, mommy and daddy get angry when you guys continue to disobey and refuse and refuse and refuse. And we're slow to anger most of the time. We're slow to anger. <laughs> we're slow to anger, but we still get angry. And it's not wrong to get angry. Actually, you can be angry and not sin. But in Scripture, we are commanded to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. We're commanded to be like God. Be patient. Be slow to anger. It doesn't say don't ever get angry, you sinful people. Anger is terrible. God gets angry, but he, he's slow to anger. And he, he withholds his anger on, on sin and injustice. And Well, he, he, he restrains it, but then there's a time where, you know, he just kind of releases it. It's judgment. There's, there comes a point. Don't presume upon the grace and the mercy and the patience of God. Don't ever presume upon it. Well, I'll just sin that grace may abound. I'll be all right. I'm under grace, brother, sister. Don't tell me I can go do what I want. I'm a Christian. I'm saved by grace. Don't presume upon the grace of God like that because God might take you out. Like Ananias and Sapphira. He might, he might take you home to glory soon, sooner than than, than you want. Uh, so don't presume upon the grace of God. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. He's loving. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's not bankrupt. He's not low in his account on love and dishing it out. 
He got a whole bunch of it to give out for us, a whole bunch of love to go around. He doesn't have to portion out like, well, I can only give this much out today. Uh, he can just, just overtake us with wave upon wave, with love, and grace, and mercy. Amen? He's faithful. He's consistent. He keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He's forgiving, and he's just. Now, we have a problem here, though. I don't know if you've seen it. I've, I've, I've referenced it a little bit here, but we have a problem with that, that last part. As I mentioned earlier, Nahum uses this as this guy right here is like this chapter is about judgment. God's going to judge. And so he's quoting the last part of this. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He left off that first part. Uh, (laughs) But he's letting them know this is also true about God. God does not just sweep sin under the rug. Ah, It's all right. No no worries. No, No big deal. God demands that the penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We just got done uh, going through Leviticus um, on Wednesday night. Actually, we're still in Leviticus uh, in our Bible reading plan. So we're going through Leviticus, and it's just it's messy. There's these sacrifices, all right, uh, in, in Exodus as well. There, there's all these, you know, you, you bring this offering and this guilt offering, the sin offering, and, and there's it's just messy, and it's a reminder it's a reminder that, that sin, is, it, it brings judgment, it brings death, it brings destruction, and it must be accounted for. God doesn't sweep it under the rug. I think the best way to resolve the tension between verse 7 and verse 6, that the Lord by no means clears, or actually within that verse, within that verse, the Lord, okay, he's forgiving, he's forgiving, he forgives sin, iniquity, transgression, but he by no means clears, clears the guilty. How's that work? Because we're all among the guilty. Is there anybody that would dare say, I've never sinned before, I've never lied, never stolen, never dishonored my parents. I don't deserve God's judgment. Is anybody willing or daring enough to, to say that or deceived enough to, to think that? Uh, sin is deceitful, by the way. God will by no means clear the guilty. And I think where we see the ultimate resolve for this, the ultimate resolve for this is at the cross. Where we see mercy, justice meet. Justice and mercy meet. Justice and uh, the love of God. Where, where the demands of sin are satisfied by the death of the holy, sinless Son of God. And Love and grace and mercy is displayed to his people. That's where we see this resolve ultimately fulfilled. And so God is a just God. Okay, any judge, any judge that will stand on his, um, whatever he stands on, or sit on his throne or whatever he sits on, judge the case of a murderer and a rapist who had violated your family or my family, And he says, I'm just going to let you go. No payment, no parole, no probation. You're good. How would we feel about that judge? I think each one of us would say there is a moral issue with that judge. Just nothing, nothing, what's up? That, That brother would be kicked out of his job very soon, right? And so God is a just judge, and he can't just, he doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. It must be atoned for, 
And again, it's atoned for at the cross. Christ took it. So the sins that we've committed and the sins committed against us, we must bring to the cross and lay them at the foot of the cross. Then we can release mercy and grace and forgive those who've wronged us and done us wrong. Amen? So after Moses sees all this, he sees the glory. He bows in worship. This should be our response as well. We should bow and worship before God. And then he prays. He prays in response to that. He says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So he prays for God's presence again. He prays for God's pardon. There is this sense of a need for forgiveness. As Moses is in the presence of holiness, he, pray, he pleads for mercy. This is common when men encounter God in the Bible. When Isaiah encountered the holiness of God, he says, Woe is me from a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people with unclean lips. He's convicted in the holiness of God. And you see, when we're convicted like that, we could either run away or try to justify ourselves, blame, complain, explain away the sinfulness of our actions and our nature, or we can plead to a merciful God, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity. Psalm 51, David responded like that because David knew that the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will pardon. So here's the takeaway. I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up, land the plane. Here here's the, here's the so what for us. We should behold the glory of God. Behold who he is. Meditate, get a glimpse with the help of the spirit and the scripture. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. It says, we all with unveiled face. Okay, so he's referring to Moses. Moses had a veil that he used to cover uh, over his face. And also in the temple, that sep- the separation, there was this veil that separated the holy place. And the scripture says that that was torn in two for us. So that was torn in two when Jesus died. And now that signifies that we can go into the holiest place. And now we can behold glory. We can see God through Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, he manifested his glory full of grace and truth. It says, we all with an unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed by the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so let's get a good look at who God is, church. Let's behold him. Let's behold who he is. Hone in on who he is. Meditate on who he is. Sing about who he is. Talk about who he is. And then bow and worship like Moses did. Bow as you sense the weightiness of who he is. Let that bring you to a place of humble worship. And then become a gracious person by beholding your gracious God. Let him transform you into a person who's not quick to anger, who's not a loose cannon, who's not graceless and unkind and hard-hearted, but let him make you gracious like him. Amen? So, Lord, we do look to you. I thank you for this time to, and, and this wonderful truth that I have the privilege of declaring 
the glory of who you are. I pray that you open our eyes to see and savor the glory of who you are. 